a gun in the face. Then all of a sudden, they all kind of lined up. They pointed their guns at me. And this is the point where I thought, I'm going to die today. Started two years of horror for an American in Venezuela. They said, you need to give us your phone and get ready because you're coming with us. I'm Becky Bruce, and I spent a year researching and piecing together Josh and Tammy Holt's story about their ordeal in a notorious prison. That's when everything started to turn bad. We had another pound on the door. Boom, boom, boom. And there was the police once again. You can binge all of the episodes of Hope in Darkness on kslpodcasts.com or wherever you get your podcasts. Today's First Lady and Friends conversation is with Amanda Covington at Larry H. Miller Companies. She is a friend. We golf together, and uh, she has some great advice about how to be a champion. Let's get proximate. Welcome to First Lady and Friends. We are so happy to have a really good friend of mine, uh, here today on the show, Amanda Covington. Welcome. Oh, thank you. It's an honor, really, to have been invited to be on this podcast with you. I listen um, to all of them with such great intent, and to be sitting here across from you is really a pleasure. Oh, thank you, Amanda. We are also, and we will get into this, but we are also golf buddies. Yes, we are. We are <laughs> cart mates and golf buddies. <laughs> <laughs> and we will get into that, because I think this is a really important conversation for us to have. But for, before we do that, I want to, um, for those that don't know you, uh, let's talk a little bit about um, your background, um, how you got started, just family, where you grew up, all that kind of yeah. stuff. Yeah. Um, I grew up in West Valley City, Utah. I went to Hunter High School. It was um, still fairly new then. So I remember being in junior high and voting on the mascot and the name. And and it was um, a great opportunity for me. I lived out by the Winder Dairy, if anybody listening knows the Winder Dairy. Um, and then I went to the University of Utah. And I met my husband there. We were married just after we graduated with our bachelor's degrees. And a few years later, um, as a mom of two, I went back and received my master's degree. I studied communications. I wanted to be a TV news journalist. Um, I did my uh, internship at KSL. I worked on the assignment desk and then uh, began producing television newscasts uh, for KSL and then Channel 4. And... um, in the middle of all of that, had an opportunity to go and work for the Utah Department of Transportation. And it was a pretty pivotal shift for me in terms of career. Um, I was going from the news side to the other side, which was PR, and thought a lot about it. Um, And when I made the move, it was such a great time in UDOT's history. Uh, They were transitioning from doing road construction projects and, you know, putting up a detour sign to really public involvement. And engaging businesses and constituents with road closures and projects and um, getting feedback. And so that was the time the I-15 reconstruction happened um, from 600 North down to 114th South. Was I the f- remember that yeah. well, because Spencer and I were actually in Logan at the time going to school. Okay, And I remember it taking us like sometimes five hours to get through it. To, to get, get home, home from, to get to Fairview, which usually is about a three to three and a half hour mm. drive from Logan to Fairview. And I just remember we were like, this 
it's not worth going home. Let's just stay in Logan. Let's just stay. <laughs> yeah. And a lot of people called it the luge. Remember, it was so narrow. And um, and there was just a lot going on. They were driving big piles, you know, to hold up bridges around um, the South Salt Lake City area where the Spaghetti Bowl is. It was the first design build in the country where they were designing as they were building. It was just very innovative and a lot of fun to to work on communications and public relations. And on the heels of that became preparation for the Winter Olympics here mm -hmm. and building park and ride lots and communicating to motorists that we needed to get off of the roads. And I remember going and meeting with Governor Levitt um, and saying, we need to convince state workers to job share. Like, what was this crazy thing? Or telecommute. And now, you know, post-COVID, that's just, you know, everyday vernacular. But just to convince people to change the way they thought about work. Isn't that funny that, um, you know, that long ago we were talking about it, but it wasn't even just a few years ago, nobody was. I mean, I, I know Spencer was trying to push. He did a pilot program. He convinced Governor Herbert to let him do a pilot program where, you know, we were having people um, telecommute and, you know, state workers. Yeah. And just a, a small pilot with a couple thousand people in it. And I remember, you know, going around talking about it and how, how great it was and the increase in production. You know, people are actually doing more, even though they were home. Um, you know, the benefits of, of, you know, less pollution and, you know, less cars on the road and all those kinds of things. And, and it's so funny that it took, not funny, but it, it took, you know, this real tragedy to sort of, rethink the way we do things. Yeah, it was a real catalyst to switch. It was an interesting time. There were a lot of innovative things happening. So yeah, the Olympics were great. Um, we all have great memories. I was seven months pregnant at the time with my first baby. Really? And so, um, and I worked at the Traffic Operations Center, which now everybody watches TV morning news and can see the Traffic Operations Center and the cameras, but it was such a new idea. Know before you go, we coined that wow. phrase and... Um, 511. It was just an innovative time in transportation. And I felt like I worked with some of the greatest innovators. Um, and then I watched the transition from Governor Levitt going to the EPA and Olene Walker um, was named governor. And I had this crazy opportunity um, through really sponsors of my career, champions, not just mentors, but champions to have the opportunity to work in the governor's office. I was mid-20s super young, new mom. Um, and because of Natalie Gochner, Vicki Varela, I mean, real amazing women, um, I had the chance to be Governor Walker's communications deputy. And it um, was the ride of a lifetime. She, you know, it was 14 months, first woman governor, um, crazy schedules. She, she put me to shame. I've never seen anybody work so hard or go so fast. And and stand up for what she really believed in and did was right. Um, you know, we read 20 minutes a day with our kids because of her. Yeah. Um, and uh, she really was a proponent of making sure kids learn to read at an early age. And she did so many more great things. So that was that. And then when um, she didn't win her um, campaign, I went to work for higher education. And I was able to uh, work on things like the Regent Scholarship and uh, new presidential searches and, and those types of things. And then um, I went on to work in private sector. So I went into the aerospace and defense industry. How do I go from news wow. to transportation to government <laughs> to aerospace and defense? But I did. 
Um, and again, it was because of a champion. It, you know, um, ATK had called and asked for a communications professional and Vicki Varela was called and she said, I know just the person and, and she championed me for that role. And I had no idea how business actually worked. I knew state government and budgets. I understood the legislative process, but I really hadn't dealt in earnings per share and, you know, how we figured revenue and leverage and all of those things that were happening in a business climate. And I, I went to work for the armament systems division, which was really military ammunition. Um, and I got to travel the world. I got to go to India and Abu Dhabi and France and England and all over doing, you know, um, defense programs for the military and our allies and learned so much there. Um, and then uh, went to Washington, D.C. to work for the corporate office. So we moved our family. We had little kids in elementary school and we took a risk. And I was there for three years. And then we came back to Utah with a spinoff of ATK called Vista Outdoor, which was then all outdoor products. So we took that piece of ammunition, hunting, and um, the shooting sports world and brought it back to Utah and then expanded in crazy ways, Camelback and Camp Chef and um, Giro helmets, and really got to do a lot of that. And then um, I left there after, between ATK and Vista was 10 years, and then I came to Larry H. Miller. Wow. And I just pinch myself every day that I've had an incredible opportunity to work for great companies and amazing leaders. Let's, I love the idea of champions. So, so we talk about mentors. Yeah. We talk about, you know, making sure that, that we have more women in the room, all those kinds of things. Talk about what it was like as a young 20 something in, in the room. And, and, you know, there's a little bit of, I'm sure, a little imposter syndrome mm -hmm. that we, you know, we use that word a lot, but, um, or that phrase a lot. What, talk to me a little bit about the difference between maybe a champion and a mentor and what those champions did for you and how it was like, what, what, what was it like to be in, in a room as a 20 something yeah. <laughs> with, I'm sure, all older men? Yeah. Uh, what, what was that like? Well, I actually have a, a great story on that. So when I went to Utah, I was 23. Wow. Um, and within a year, I became director of communications. And now I think, wow, wow, 23? I, I knew nothing. <laughs> I didn't know anything about anything. Um, but the director at the time was um, Tom Warren and then John Nord. And I just think, wow, what incredible faith they had in in me. Um, but here's, here's an example of a champion. And I hope if there are men listening that this resonates with them. So we were working really hard on the Olympic transportation plan. And, and I do remember governor Levitt said to the department, don't let transportation be a story. Meaning it was a really, um, it, it became negative in Atlanta. Um, and oh, so, a story for the Olympics. For the Olympics. Gotcha. So okay. don't let this be a negative hit on us. We've done so much. We've planned so well. Let's let this be a success rather than something that's not. And I, you know, as a early 20 something, I felt a lot of pressure. Um, and, and we set a goal to reduce background traffic, meaning you and me going to work in the grocery store and school every day by 20 percent so that those visitors who came to Salt Lake City could move freely about um, during the winter. And we we handed out guides with Smiths as people at Smith's grocery stores when people bought their turkeys. We were on the radio. We did press conferences and, and we did what I talked to you about, you know, telecommuting and, and job sharing. And we reduced background traffic by 40 percent. 
during the games. Incredible. And why does why can't that we sustain that? That would be amazing. <laughs> why can't we do that all the time? We saw it again during COVID, right? People got yeah. off the roads. But um, so it was really interesting. And I, I felt really good about that as we were meeting with the governor and briefing him on that. I didn't learn this until probably two years ago. And Natalie shared this story with me, but she said, you know, as we were planning and doing all of that, John Nord was supposed to come and brief the governor as the cabinet head on the plans. And he said, I'm bringing a young woman with me. I I want you to pay attention. I never knew he did that. Wow. But he said to me, come along with me, Amanda. I want you to share your plan with the governor. And as you know, this 23-year-old, I thought, I'm going to go meet with the governor. I like, And, and Lynn Ward is in the room and Natalie Gochner and um, Rich McKeon and all of these greats that you hear about in state government. And I thought, I hope I do all right. This is, this is really crazy. But what I didn't know is he had paved the way for me and he had said, watch, watch this person with potential. I want you to see her in action. Um, and he could have done that meeting. He could have taken that meeting and and it would have been just like any other briefing. But he he stepped aside and gave me an opportunity, mm-hmm. which I totally believe led to me then being offered to go work in the governor's office shortly after. Yeah. Um, so that's one example. And and I've tried to pay that forward with with people I work with to say, you know, hey, why don't you make that presentation or come with me? Why don't you come with me and meet the first lady or why don't why don't you go and make this presentation to Gail Miller? I don't I don't need to do that. And. I think that's really important. And you add that with people like Natalie or Vicky or others who say, I know of somebody, let me refer them. Let me put my name on the line for them or, or bring them with me. I think that's what we should do for each other. That is incredible. That That's a powerful example, you know, a real concrete example of what it means. Sometimes we talk about mentorship or we talk about these things, but that's a, that's a concrete example of, of that um, idea in action. I love that. Mm-hmm. And, um, and I have seen those women. I know those women. And I know uh, that somebody probably did that for them as well. And I think as we do this for each other, you won't be the one woman in the room. Mm-hmm. That There'll be five women in the room. And it won't be – that's when we know the best outcomes happen. Right. Is when um, we have diversity and diversity of thought and and – diversity in all different ways, uh, making those decisions. So thank you. That's a great example. Um, I want to keep talking about your sort of cr- career trajectory and the things that you've been doing. Uh, we'll, we'll keep talking when we come right back. Two years ago, Americans watched in horror as a crisis unfolded at the Kabul airport. She was tear gassed and beaten. Images of thousands desperate to escape Taliban oppression filled our news feeds. More than 80,000 Afghans made it to America. But the story didn't end there. It was very cold. There was no power, no heat. Who would help our newest neighbors? I'm Andrea Smartin. In Stranger Becomes Neighbor, you'll hear the stories of some remarkable refugees who left their homes and their dreams behind, only to start over from zero. Their only possession was three blankets. And you'll meet Americans who stepped up to help them. You want me to come when you deliver your baby. What can one person do in the face of an international disaster decades in the making? That's Stranger Becomes Neighbor. Find us at kslpodcast.com, follow us on Apple Podcasts, or anywhere else you listen. 
We are back here with Amanda Covington. She is at Larry H. Miller now, and we've talked a lot about your your career journey. Um, let's you talk about um, really championing champ. I don't know if I can say that word. <laughs> championing uh, other other people uh, around us and and examples of how to do that. So, what advice would you give your twenty? three-year-old self or, or maybe even a teenager that would, that's, that's coming up and looking around and saying, I mean, I've had my daughter say to me, mom, I don't know how to do this. I, I want, she's, she's bright. She's, um, she's driven and she's like, well, I, I still, I want to be a mom and, but I also want to figure out how to do what I want to do uh, career wise. I mean, what would you, what would you tell somebody? Well, I learned great wisdom early on from Governor Walker, who, if you study her career and her life, just an exceptional woman um, who went back and received a Ph.D. while raising seven kids and um, then ran for the legislature, Utah's first woman governor, et cetera. But I remember her speaking often and telling me personally, you know, there are seasons in life. You can do everything you want to do. You just don't have to do it all at the same time. And she was, t- I was pregnant with my second child when I worked for Governor Walker. And actually, um, Kirsten Rapley on your team and I laugh a lot because she went through this just recently uh, with her second pregnancy. And, you know, back then there weren't mother's rooms and, you know, things that I think we've championed for a long time. But um, Governor Walker was was inspirational to me. And I always remember that because I want to do everything and, and things are very fun and I want to tackle that or learn more about this or volunteer at that. And I have to think, okay, you know, you, you can do it all. You just don't have to do it all right now. And I think another thing I, I was, you mentioned being, you know, the only one in a room of, of men. When I was on the leadership team at UDOT, I was in my twenties and I was a female, and everyone else around that table were middle-aged men. Um, and I felt this imposter syndrome. I think I didn't know that that's what it was called then, but that I had to succeed and overachieve. And I think sometimes I was really impatient. I was very impatient with myself, and I think even those around me. Um, and I was put in a position to manage others and do things, and I wanted so badly to do so well that I think that I would say you know, be patient and kind to yourself. Um, we learn that later as we get older, that we should have just been a little bit more <laughs> tenderhearted about our mistakes and the things we were doing. And I wish I would have known that. And then I think the third thing I would say, and I say it today, is just say yes. I mean, my career has taken these crazy twists and turns from somebody who wanted to be the next Ruth Todd. I mean, that's what I wanted to be. <laughs> And I'm certainly not that, but I've, I feel like I've had a very rewarding path, but it's because I said yes to opportunities or to an interview or, Hey, let's go to lunch. I want you to meet somebody. And those all turned out to be something, Mm -hmm. even if it's just a special friendship and we owe it to ourselves to say yes. I, that is an incredible, um, thought. Uh, we, I was just doing a women, a panel at our one Utah summit with some women in leadership at, at the state in, in the cabinet, the governor's cabinet. And, um, Tiffany Clayson at DABC said, um, you should come from a place of yes. Mm-hmm. And I was like, I have never heard that. And you're the, you're the second person <laughs> in a week that has said basically coming from a place of yes 
with boundaries. I mean, she always, she, that little, that little caveat, but, but coming from a place of yes, what does that mean? And what has that done for you? Well, you know, this is a very personal story, but um, my opportunity to be at Larry H. Miller was because I was in a place of yes. Mm -hmm. Um, Through another great woman leader in town, Pat Jones, uh, she invited me to come to a conference with her um, on higher ed. And I had nothing to do that day, but I wasn't even focused on higher education, but I love Pat. So I said yes. And she introduced me to um, a friend of hers named Jim Wall, uh, former editor of the Desert News. I hadn't met him personally. And he said, hey, I have this project I'm working on. You know, let's go meet for breakfast. I thought, I don't have I don't know. Like, I just don't know that I have the bandwidth for this. This is weird. Am I getting roped into something I don't know anything about? But I thought, why not? So I met him for breakfast on my way to work one day. And as we were talking, he said, I'm I'm working on this project and um, I'm going to go meet with Gail Miller. Do you want to come and meet with me? Do you know her? And I said, no. I, I don't, but sure, I'll come. Everybody knows, <laughs> knows who she is, who, but yeah. I didn't know, know yeah, her. Yeah. And so, sure, why not? And so I ended up at the Vivint Arena meeting with Gail Miller one day talking about this project that I had gotten roped into. And um, long story short, after a few weeks, she had called and said, you know, it'd be really great to have you at our organization. Mm-hmm. And how do we make that work? Wow. And here I am. And so it's just a small story. But I think sometimes we can really convince ourselves, you know, I'm too busy or I'm not interested or, you know, maybe today I just want to stay home because yeah. <laughs> sometimes you feel like that, too. Um, and just by showing up, which I love show up, Utah, I totally yeah. I think you are talking about coming from a place of yes, yeah. which is you show up. Yeah. Yeah. You put one foot in front of the other and you show up. Yeah. No, that's that's so powerful. And I think um, for those of us, you know that are in maybe a little farther down the road in, you know, like you in a career. Um, it's always important to, to realize those lessons, mm-hmm. think about where you've come and then who, who can I gather around me to bring, to bring with me to, to help understand these lessons and, and to go forward and serve as well. So I think that's, that's beautiful. Um, so let's you t- you talked a little bit about Pat Jones, who is awesome. But let's talk a little bit about um, the Women's Leadership Institute. Tell me a little bit about that and and how you're connected in there. Oh, I love the Women's Leadership Institute of Utah. I I believe it came about through the Salt Lake Chamber and a lot of conversations about supporting women, diversity on boards in leadership positions within the workplace in general, wage gap. I mean, you think about a number of issues facing professional women, and um, I believe it was Scott Anderson and a couple of others that basically said, Pat, you're the one. So she pulled that organization together. It's a nonprofit organization, and it has, if, if you visit their website, they have an incredible board. Um, and I know that the- It's Luke- the who's who. <laughs> it is. Utah. It's people who yeah. get things done. Yep. Um, and I remember Lieutenant Governor Cox at the time was very- supportive of that and served on that board and Kirsten also. And I know that the governor's office continues to be very supportive, but you, you look at the things, you know, she realized employers weren't going to sign up to share all of their metrics maybe, or open their books and and say, this is where we're failing. So she came up with an idea to, um, for the elevate her challenge, elevator challenge, 
um, which helps women rise within organizations, but doesn't shame companies for where they're missing or lacking, but really encourages everyone to just improve. And And you take a bunch of um, pledges to basically make progress. And the number of companies who have signed on to do that work is phenomenal here in Utah. And the diversity on our board, men, women, people of color, people of different ages and backgrounds, and the work that they're getting done on behalf of, of women who want to do more is great. Um, so I've been involved with her for a long time. I love some of the series that they put on. And, and if you're listening and interested, she does a career development series where women come in for several months, once a month, and hear professional speakers or uh, women who have done incredible things speak about their journeys. And these women get to ask questions. They create their own network. They're mid-level managers who want to take the next step, which is amazing. Um, and you get to visit companies around the state of Utah and, and see what they're doing and, and be introduced to their teams. And then the second one that she does that I really love is her political uh, development series. And boy, we need more women running for office. Yes. <laughs> we need more women running and winning. <laughs> and winning. And, and, you know, statistically, I'll get it wrong, so I won't quote it. But statistically, the number of women she has run and win is is pretty incredible. And if you don't know how to file to run or how to campaign or build your brand or follow disclosure rules around fundraising, she teaches women all of that mm. and brings people from you know, it's a bipartisan approach. So you hear from Democrats and Republicans and independents and, and you really get to shape, shape your plan. And it also just instills courage because it's so scary. Oh, I, you know, obviously I have not personally run for office and I am so blown away by the women that, that have and have jumped in. And it's, it's incredibly intimidating because I sort of live in this politically adjacent. Well, I'm probably not, I'm probably less adjacent. <laughs> I'm probably like right in it, but not as a candidate. And, um, well, I know. I I say that. And I'm like, uh, it feels but like I was a candidate. You were on that campaign trail. <laughs> you know. I feel like I kind of was. But um but what I've I've noticed that there's a lot of people, even men and women, who even you, you know, a lot of women you really most women you have to ask and ask and ask before they'll run. Mm-hmm. Um we know that from the data. Um and but even men, it, it's so interesting. It's like I'm going to jump in. Let's go, and you know, I'll ask a question, and it'll be like, "Yeah, I don't know who my representative is, and what's this, and what what is this, you know, poli- political vernacular, you know, all all these these, you know, this process. Um, I think it can be extremely intimidating. And I love that she's putting that out there. I love that Women's Leadership Institute has that opportunity for women to really, before they jump right in, they have a real strong foundation um, in in leadership, which is really cool. I agree with that. And I I personally am a chicken. I, I don't know that I could get over that threshold, but I, I want to encourage anyone who's even thinking about running to get involved, um, whether it's at a local level or school board or in your city or town or run for a big race. I mean, we just we need to round out the dialogue and bring other opportunities for solutions and diverse opinions. And and women do that so well. And, you know, there's there's something about what you said where men will just, you know, maybe just jump in that race where women will overthink it and think about it and look at it every way. 
um, and look at all the data before they decide. And isn't that true in the workplace too? You know, we might see an opportunity for a job opening and think, well, I might only meet 65% of what's in that job description. So I'm going to pass. I, I don't think I have a hundred percent of the qualifications, so I just won't put myself out there. And, and research shows men think about that differently where, yeah, I've got that 65% and I can do the rest anyway. Right. So I'm, <laughs> I'm going to jump in there, which we love. We love that sense of confidence and, and we just need to find that in ourselves as women too. Yeah, I, I completely agree. Um, so let's talk about, um, your, what's happening now. You are, uh, you're at Larry H. Miller. Yeah. Um, you had that conversation with Gail. It obviously went well. <laughs> <laughs> she she brought you right in. So where did you where did where did you start and where are you now? Isn't it so funny? Um, I took a risk. So I had left the company uh, I was at before as a chief communications officer, and she said, "I I just I just know I want you to work here, but I don't really have a position open." And so I started as the director of special projects. <laughs> I think I think you and Steve Starks have a similar we experience, do. right? Well, there's like a handful of us at that organization that came in as directors of special projects. And it's it's fascinating because Steve went through the same thing. Larry hired him as a director of special projects and you go and take whatever they give you and I think it's like they haven't ever said this to me, but it's probably like a test run, right? If we yeah. give you this little project and you can go do well, maybe there's an opportunity for you down the road. But several people I work with on the leadership team now are who are presidents of the businesses within the group um, started as a director of special projects. So I feel honored to be in that cohort. Um, so that's where I started. And then and I was working on diversity and inclusion, which is very fun um, and and a constant labor of love, right? We need to keep working at it. Um, and we are. And then Steve Starks was named CEO. And I remember the day he called me, I was actually sitting outside of the Capitol. It was during the legislative session and I was up there for a meeting and he called and said, Hey, uh, I'd like you to come and be on my team and help with strategic communications and, um, government relations. And we've not really had that combined role before. What do you think? Could you make that work? And that's what I've been doing ever since. That's amazing. Yeah. Um, we want to continue your conversation. Uh, Larry H. Miller has had, the company has had many changes yeah. in the last little while. And so let's, let's talk about that when we come right back. We are back with Amanda Covington. She is at Larry H. Miller Companies. T tell me your, uh, your, uh, like title. I can't remember exactly. <laughs> you said it. Oh, uh, it's uh, chief of corporate affairs. Oh, okay. Or that. chief corporate affairs officer. I don't know. There I don't you. say it very often. <laughs> it's a mouthful. It is. A, we have weird titles now. I know. It's <laughs> crazy. Trying to, but we were talking about this during the break. There are people, and obviously Larry Miller, Gail Miller, um, were, are, were, and are that, um, where they are, these once in a lifetime, once in a generation leaders who just see potential in people yeah. and then they just draw them in. Mm -hmm. I think they're visionary and I think they're willing to take a risk, but they trust their gut. As I've watched Gail um, over these last few years and Steve Starks has got that same gene too. They just know good talent and they're sure enough. Obviously there's an unknown, but they're sure enough that they'll take that risk and say, just jump on this 
fast moving train and, and <laughs> go on this ride with us. And I, I, I love that. I love that in innovative entrepreneur type leaders. Yeah. And, and you, you, you know, you said he has the gene for it. I, I think it's also experience too. And I, I don't know, trusting your gut is really an interesting idea for me because when I was growing up, my dad decided to start a company. He, he decided he was going to jump in, be an entrepreneur, had an idea, got some people around him that thought, you know, just, it was, it was actually a, um, it was a conveyor belt manufacturing and, you know, at the time we, you know, well, they still do, but lived in San Pete County where they had um, had uh, a turkey processing plant. So that those were the kinds of things people or companies, businesses that they were selling to. Okay. And, um, you know, we're we're chugging along. He has 10 kids. You know, my parents have 10 kids. And my I'm at a real, you know, tender age of like eight, nine, ten. And. I remember like it completely failed. Mm. The business completely failed. And I remember right before Christmas, um, my dad had no job. And I mean, we had the farm. We weren't starving. We were making the farm work and, and doing all that. But we, I mean, it was a scary time, I think, for our family and really, really a scary time for for me personally, as a, as a child, I was very aware, very well aware of what was going on around me, which, you know, I have sisters that were like, they had no clue. But I was just that kid that kind of figured it out. But um, the flip side of that is Spencer's experience. So we have we come from two very different places as far as that goes. <laughs> so he has this his dad, you know, so hard, but you know the the phone company and the, and they turned it into this internet company, not without a lot of hard, crazy work. You know, you you you've heard Larry Miller's story, you know, all that stuff, just the really beginnings and and the real stressful time. But then it became a very successful and continues to be a very successful internet telecommunications company. And so Spencer and I, whenever we would talk about risk in our young you know, early married days, he's, I'm completely risk averse Mm -hmm. and he's like, he's great with risk. And I don't know, maybe, I don't know if it's a gene or or it's experience. experience. Yeah. Yeah, Maybe I grew up with very risk averse parents, Um, you know, always made sure they had enough savings that they lived within their budget, you know, and then, um, and which was great. I had a very stable childhood, which is fantastic. Um, but then you hear Larry Miller's story, you know, where he risks $88,000 to, you know, leverage and go buy a car dealership that, <laughs> you know, now has become this incredible company that's changing lives for its employees and its customers. And you just think, God, he and Gail just, you know, bit the bullet. They just Did went it. for it. And then could I do that? I don't know. I don't think so. But I also was raised in a very risk averse household. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I know. Isn't that interesting? I think we, we all come with different experiences and we need all those yeah. types of people. We need the the people that are less risk averse to do different jobs. And we need those entrepreneurs that are willing to fail mm-hmm. um, to, to you know, live out their dream of, of owning their own business or running their own business. So it's it's kind of fun. But Larry H. Miller is changing. The company is very, is changing. Tell us a little bit about some of those changes in the last, what, year or so? Yeah, a year. 
it's a transformational time and such an exciting time to be at the Larry H. Miller Group of Companies. And, you know, I credit Gail, her children, um, for not being risk averse, for, for having vision and foresight and being flexible. And I give a lot of credit to our CEO, Steve Starks. Um, he's visionary. He flies at a 30,000 plus foot level. He's looking, thinking, asking hard questions, um, and he moves quickly, which is so fun to be on that team and, and see things happen. And if you think about it, less than a year ago, we announced the Jazz transaction, yep. um, which has been so great. Ryan and Ashley Smith are amazing, um, and the ownership team he's put around him. The Miller family is still a minority owner um, of the team and this affiliated businesses. And but but it was a great thing for Utah at the time, and a great thing for our company and and the Miller family. And then we went and bought two new companies. So we closed the jazz deal on December 18th of 2020. And before the year closed, on December 31st, we purchased a healthcare organization, um, Advanced Healthcare, which is really focused on skilled nursing facilities for acute post-operative care. So you get a hip replacement and you go there for a few weeks and and rehabilitate. Um, And they do some home health um, and hospice service. And then within four more months, we purchased the undeveloped land in Daybreak. And that's been exciting. They, the Millers have always had a foot in real estate. They own most of the real estate where their car dealerships are and Megaplex movie theaters, et cetera, not to mention some other developments. But then this is just an incredible opportunity. Um, Daybreak is out in the southwest quadrant of Salt Lake Valley, the Salt Lake County, and population is booming. Yeah, it's crazy um, out there. Yeah. Everybody I talked to, oh, we're at daybreak. Oh, we're at daybreak. I'm like, <laughs> I need to get out to daybreak, yeah. apparently. It's it's so well done. And I think, you know, the Miller organization, their mission is to enrich lives. And so with this real estate opportunity, um, the opportunity is to build communities and to do something smart for the state of Utah that will be a once in a generational opportunity once in a generation opportunity to say, we have this undeveloped land. There are few landowners out there with us in that quadrant um, who can really come together and create a vision for smart growth, um, you know, smarter technology, better infrastructure, balance out the demands that we're seeing on I-15 and and other areas and and put people closer to their jobs and to recreation opportunities. Butterfield Canyon is right there. Mm. Um, there are creeks and trails and an opportunity for us with Salt Lake County to connect all of those together. Um, education plays, healthcare plays, where we can um, do something that when we look back in 30 years, 50 years, and we see children, great-grandchildren, whomever in, in our family lines, say, we did that for them. That's what's exciting about the real estate opportunity there. And not just um, in Daybreak, but we have opportunities in other states and other areas around the state of Utah that we're, we're working on. So that gets me really excited about coming to work every day. And then um, just about a few weeks ago, three weeks ago, we announced that the Miller family will sell all of their dealerships and associated property and um, Total Care Auto powered by Landcar, which is a um, they offer uh, – products, um, warranty type products for cars. And we expect that to close by the end of the year. And when you think about it, the Utah jazz and the dealerships, when you think about Larry H. Miller, that's sort of what you associate with them. It is. And I'm sure that was maybe a tough thing for the family to sort of grapple with. 
um, especially, you know, as their their father has passed away mm-hmm. and these were the things they built or that he, you know, started and they built together as a family. I'm 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 sure there were a lot of tough conversations about um making those moves. Yeah. But you know what, what an opportunity to have great and tough conversations and use data and, um, and, and you know, what was fun to see with both of those transactions where values were at the core of all of it. And I think that's a reminder for all of us. Um, you know, Ryan and Ashley Smith were, were, were like-minded stewards Mm -hmm. of a community asset like the jazz. Um, and, and I watched as Gail, you know, spoke about that transaction and, and how she felt so good about that sale. And as we worked with this um, buyer that we have an agreement with, you know, like-minded in terms of values and how they treat employees and the opportunities for those employees as part of the transaction to have similar benefits and keep their pay and, and do things um, that they already were doing, but on a larger scale with this national coast to coast company now. And so I, as I watched their decision-making Values were fundamental. And then building with data and analysis, a lot of good questions. And then that ability to say, you know, we manage our businesses with an eye toward the future and we are innovative and we are flexible and we are entrepreneurs. And so, you know, they made these great decisions. And I think the outcome is is definitely important for Utah because you're going to see an, another significant uh, contribution to the family's foundation mm-hmm. and those in Utah here, you know, we know what great stewards of our communities, the Miller family has been and um, the giving and the support for some really hard issues like homelessness um, to education um, and health. I mean, I could go on and on. Um, And then the second part of that is the opportunity to invest in and grow with new businesses and operations. And that's exciting. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I always look at, the Larry H. Miller company or group of companies as sort of this grandfather, grandmother, maybe is the better term, um, company that that really is the pillar for everyone else in the state. Anybody who maybe is coming into the state for the first time and to say, we we always want everyone to look at them. You know, when when you're recruiting businesses, when you have businesses coming into the state, we want to have a a culture, a business culture that is not just about making money. Yeah. That 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 Utah's in Utah's DNA. Um, it's expected to give back, and if you can hold up the Larry H. Miller companies as sort of this. Um, you know, ideal of what a company should look like as far as their, their giving and their stewardship to the people of Utah. I think when that's a mind shift, I think for many companies and when they come into Utah, all of a sudden they're like, wait, oh, this is how business is done here. And if you look at Larry H. Miller, then you'll know exactly how business is done here, which I think is really cool. Well, they have a, I, I agree with you. Thank you. I think that's so kind. And it's, it's true about how they've managed their business and their giving, but they see being in business as a means to an end, a means to doing good. And I've loved that because as we've said, when values were at the core of all of the decisions that they're making, that was always in the mix. How do we give back? How do we do more? How do we support our communities? What happens to our employees? Will they be well taken care of? 
Um, those are such great questions and, and don't get lost in the transactional nature of business. And um, I've worked for a lot of places and some incredible leaders, but one thing I've learned in my career is that I only want to work for an organization that has a strong mission and that includes giving back and one that values me and that I feel like I add value. Those are my three criteria. Yeah. And, um, you know, if you're in the middle of a job change or, a, or you're starting out or you're hunting for the next opportunity, you know, decide what those core things are for you, because those are great ways to make your next step decisions. Oh, I love that. Um, we cannot end without talking about our, our ventures this summer together. <laughs> we actually, Amanda and I have had some really fun times. Um, a lot of business gets transacted on the golf course and you hear that a lot. You hear a lot of folks that's, you know, politically in business, like a lot of things go on in the golf course. And, um, traditionally women, don't spend a lot of time on the golf course. Yeah, isn't it funny? Um, I think it can be really intimidating and it's an inconsistent game and it's infuriating. <laughs> some days you <laughs> just hate it and sometimes you cheer because you had a great shot. But but you're right. A lot of business and networking happens um, at a golf course and it's a great place for women to be. And um, whether you're a great golfer or you're, you've never golfed before, I think you should strongly consider it. You and I just recently golfed. It was actually the night before we announced the dealerships transaction. Was, you were headed off to a phone call. I do remember I, that. I, a very important one. Yeah. I was trying to keep a straight face the whole time, but, um, uh, we golfed with a woman that I brought along, Amanda Hansen. She's new to our organization who literally just completed a five-week golf clinic. Never golfed before. She was awesome. And we took her. Seriously. And she hit better than us on a lot of those she holes. Did. And I just admire her courage, you know, for me to say, hey, I've got a spot in our foursome. Oh, and we're golfing with the first lady. And she was <laughs> like, okay, I'll I go. Love, coming from a place of yes. Yeah, she came from a place of yes. And we had a delightful time with her and she golfed well. And even if she hadn't, who cares? We were we were a fun group anyway. Yeah. I think that's what I have enjoyed. And it's the first time I think ever that in the last, I think the last at least three times this summer, maybe four, I'm trying to remember um, that I've we've done an all women's team. I did one before and then we've done two with you mm-hmm. and we. We have had a blast. And I'm telling you, the all women's team has been my favorite thing to do. They're the best. (laughs) They are the best. I will say I just want to thank you for golfing with me the second time because I was terrible the first. (laughs) But um, I have to start from somewhere. Well, and this is the thing that we've talked about this, but the golf is infuriating. If I spent as much time um, playing any other sport, you know, if I sat and shot baskets as much time as I've tried to hit a golf ball, mm-hmm. I would be spectacular at basketball. But as it is, golf is just really infuriating because one day you will just be like, hey, I'm getting this. I'm feeling really good. And it then taketh away because the <laughs> next time you go out, you it, I have felt like I don't even know how to play golf. I don't even know what a ball is. What am I even doing here? Yeah, me too. It, it teaches you humility, right? 
Um, and I've learned control and patience because my instinct is to swear when I, <laughs> oh, I do when quite I, often, <laughs> when I shank that ball, but I'm, you know, when you're golfing with the first lady, you try to be a little oh. bit more composed <laughs> Why? <laughs> as she's over there cussing and uh, yeah, <laughs> carrying you, on. Well, I will say for your audience that you did the time we played at Jeremy Ranch for the Salt Lake Chamber tournament, you won the longest drive and you were a killer. So I know you won't brag about yourself, but it was really fun to see you hit that ball. <laughs> Spencer was been really, he's like, he keeps accusing us of cheating because we keep winning. <laughs> well, I think you two might have cheated at the one in Weber County that we went to because you cleaned up pretty well. No, I'm just kidding. I never accuse you of cheating. Uh, we, did, we did have a, that was a CF event, which was really dear to our hearts, obviously. Mm-hmm. But we we played with the, the coach of, of the Weber State basketball team, Randy and his wife, Laura. And anyway, we had we had a great time. But um, that's the thing about golf. I mean, for me, it's 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 been fun. The the way I got started playing golf was basically Spencer and his law school friends were like, hey, we should start. We should go out and golf. And I was home with two babies and I was like, uh, you're not leaving me here with the two babies. I'm going golfing with you. Whatever it is, I'll figure it out. But I just I didn't want him leaving me. So then we've just gotten to where we play golf together a lot. I love that. I love that. My husband and I, our first date was golf. Oh, really? Yeah. Uh, We golfed at the University of Utah Golf Course, which is no longer there. They've put a building on that property. But um, I played a lot as a teenager. I was in the Utah Junior Golf when I was little. Um, So moms out there, you know, put your daughters in that program. That's a great way to start. And then um, I had children and I had intense mom guilt. Mm -hmm. So I didn't golf. A lot, maybe once a year. And it wasn't until Steve forced me to come with him to a tournament, Steve Starks. He said, you're in government relations. This is like a government tournament. You know, it was a fundraiser um, for candidates. You should come. And I thought, oh, my word, this is going to be terrible. And I hadn't played and I had luck luck that day and I hit really well. And then he said, you know, you got to golf more. So I played a lot this summer. I joined a women's league and I golfed worse than I've ever golfed in my life. That's golf. Yeah. <laughs> but I just would say to every woman listening, go and play golf. Like figure figure out a way to go take a lesson or do a clinic or, um, you know, if you want to just ride in the cart the first time just to see what it's like. But but go out there and see what it's all about. Yeah. And it's fun. I mean, for, for Spencer and I, it's it's time we spend together. Yeah. It's time. And then we do tournaments. You know, like you say, when you're in this when you're in the political business, the government business or, or private, it doesn't matter. There's there's always these opportunities. And like I said, the funnest thing I've done lately is these these all women's teams that we've we've been doing. And we even won our little pro am. <laughs> I came. They brought me this big trophy. And I was like, wait, what? Wait, we won. Because <laughs> sometimes you leave before everything happens. Yes. And you're like, what what did it, what just happened? I hope it's on display. <laughs> I on had to put desk. it right in front of Spencer. I'm like, uh, by the way. <laughs> oh, I love it. Well, you're team one. <laughs> you are a lot of fun to play golf with. I have we, so much fun. We with have you. a good time and that's I think that's what's important is just going out and have fun and and knowing cuz you play with like like you and I. We've You've seen me play bad. I've I've You've seen, seen me play very I've bad. I've seen you play incredible. The last time we were out, you were <laughs> Amazing, it's redeeming, and um, and so it's it's really inconsistent and super fun. Yeah. But I think it's important that you know get out there again, come from a place of yes, and come say yes to us, yeah, to a tournament and, and show up, show up. So, 
Um, before we end, um, I'm a big reader. I know you. I know you love to to dive in. What's on your nightstand? Oh, that's a great one. Well, this is kind of fun. Um, I picked up again in the Garden of Midnight or Midnight in the Garden of Good and Evil. Why did I say that wrong? I'm going to Savannah on Friday, Ooh. so um, I'm taking my mom, and so that I dusted it off and took it out of my bookshelf just to read an old favorite. Um, I uh, read, I love fiction, really good fiction that has a little bit of history. So I, uh, where the crawdads sing is it's a good one, a great one. Um, per Gail's recommendation, I finished a few months ago, educated. Oh, that's one of those that I had to, I read and then my sister, we were like, okay, I have to debrief. Right. That was a tough one. Me too. I had to have my mom read it and my girlfriends in my neighborhood read it and then we could talk about it because you can't just read it and then No, that's on. one you have to have a conversation with somebody and debrief about because there was a lot to unpack in that book, yeah. um, especially when it comes to, I mean, I had, you know, we, we live around folks just like that family and it was one of those things I'm like I I know these I mean I don't know them specifically yeah. but I know these people yeah and it was I mean when you're talking trying to um separate religious versus psychological manipulation it's mm -hmm. it's an interesting book and yeah but a testament to grit mm. right her her drive and then it just also speaks to the opportunities education can provide yeah. anyone yeah. Um, because, you know, I was raised, my family raised me with get an education because no one can ever take it away from you. Mm -hmm. You can lose everything, but no one can take that away um, and you can always put it to work. And um, so I love that value of education and I love that sweet thread that plays throughout that book. Yeah. Just incredible. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. That's so great. I love that. Um, yeah. I always like to write down new books. So well, none of those are new. You've probably <laughs> read them all. So I, know, I was going to say, I don't think the, the first one you read, you said the one you're reading now, I don't think I've read that. Oh yeah. It, there's a lot um, of landmarks in Savannah, Georgia that are part of the movie and um, you can see it on the book. So yeah, I know that like, um, Gone with the Wind is kind of canceled or whatever, but I actually, I read that for the first time a couple of years ago mm -hmm. and I was like, this is so fascinating to me. Um, just the history of the South, just really under, and then again, there's, there's some things in there that can be debated or whatever right. a lot, but I thought it was an interesting uh, perspective and one, you know, I'd heard about a lot, but never actually read. Yeah. Yeah. It's, I think it's important to expose ourselves to all kinds of ideas and thoughts and then think critically about them and why they were portrayed the way they were and whose biases were behind them. Mm -hmm. I love to read. I, I was just boxing up a bookshelf last night and I said to my husband, I have a great collection of books. He, he was telling me like, go through these and let's get rid of some. And I said, I, I'm not getting rid of any of them. I have a great collection. <laughs> I very rarely throw books out. Yeah. I am. Like, I just feel like they're each my children. Then maybe they're, maybe I didn't love this one right now, but right. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I will someday. I could read forever. I can't do an audio book. It's just too hard. I like to actually oh, see, turn I do a page. Both. Oh, do you? Yeah, I, I definitely do both. I, I always am listening to one and I always have one on my nightstand. Oh. So I'm usually doing a couple of them. That's time. look at you. You're so. amazing. But it's just because I'm a little ADD, I think. And so I always have to have something <laughs> yeah. something going. I can do a podcast in the car, but I have to like, I have to hold my book. 
I'm yeah. very old fashioned. Yeah. No, it's good. So, well, thank you, Amanda. This has been so wonderful. Um, you're, you're on our show at board. You do so much. Anytime we need anything, we just call <laughs> and you're, you're, you're yes. Mm-hmm. I love it. Thank Always you. from a place of yes. So thank you so much for being here today. Well, you're welcome. And thank you for being such a treasure to our state. Really enjoyed this conversation with Amanda. Um, if you like this podcast, uh, tell your friends. Thanks for being a friend.